Welcome to another episode of our podcast, Stern Chats. Sherry, who do we have on the show today? We are welcoming David Purdy, a veritable Stern polymath who is an undeniable Renaissance man. He's been a loan officer, a banker, a singer, an improviser, an actor, and now a professor here at Stern. That is an incredible amount of things. It's definitely the most diverse resume we've ever had on the show. He starts out, becomes a, a finance guy, works with algorithms, quits that cold turkey and becomes a, a full-time actor. I think he's somebody that kind of lived all of his passions. I think something that I loved most about his story was that he is integrating his love of connection and he's weaving it into his everyday. The stoicism and, and business self of his father and the, the art and light of his mother. As he teaches his classes, he comes in and he makes those connections every single day. He brings in his acting. He brings in his business acumen. The guy's incredible. Incredible. Okay, Sherry, should we start the show? Let's start the show. Gosh, I'm excited. From New York University Stern campus, this is Stern Chats. The podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. Here with today's program are your hosts, Frank Fericchio and Sherry Holt. Okay, welcome to David Purdy. Would you mind just introducing yourself? Sure. I am in the management communication group at NYU Stern School of Business. Proud to be here. It's a wonderful place. It's a place where we try to work with the whole human, uh, emotional intelligence and social intelligence, and I'm thrilled to be part of that. I have a business background and the arts, and I'm trying to bring that all together in service of helping in whatever way I can. I think that is a profound thing for students to hear. Especially yeah. at a business school. Especially at a business school because, we, right. you know, we, we are more than just um, a school that teaches you uh, like these business skills. Right. We're teaching you to be your best self. Right. And you have a background that is very unique. Yeah. Thank you for coming to sit down. You're really making me blush. <laughs> Nobody can see because it's the radio. I know. That's the beauty. Or is it the fact that it's really hot in here? Well, it's like a spring day outside. We should have done this out in the park. Oh, it's so beautiful. The only problem with the park is that there's no electricity. How did you get such a long and diverse resume? Um, just having no idea what I wanted to do. I mean, what I, my, my approach to finding my way in my life has been to try all the things that I didn't want to do first. Just set them up and do them sequentially, one at a time. And slowly, slowly find, you know, something didn't, didn't suck as much as the last <laughs> thing that I did. No, I mean, no, but honestly, my father, my father was a banker and he, um, he told me, son, do what you love. And at that point I was 16 and it's like the only thing I loved to do was sing. So, foolishly, I went and got my undergraduate degree in classical music and learned to sing. Which was wonderful. I unfortunately didn't ask him the, the proper question is, how do I, how do I make money <laughs> by doing that? Yeah. And there was no answer to that. So I you know, got out of school, panicked, and went into finance for 25 years. It's, wow. How did you take your degree and then convince people that you could crunch numbers? Um, <laughs> well, I mean, you know, the world has changed a lot. When I, when I, so it was, I graduated in, what, 70, 78. And it was just a lot easier to get a job. 
And the job, and, and by the way, so I got a job as a management trainee at a, at a what was a, basically a finance company, Household Finance. It's no longer exists. And that job doesn't exist anymore. It's mm. been automated away. All that decision-making that used to have in a branch office is now centralized or automated in some way. And so literally, I could come out with a, with a music degree. In, I mean, uh, it was a degree in music education. And I just applied, and they uh, interviewed me. They gave me a test, which was some sort of a personality test. And so, naturally, I answered the questions to this test as one would. You know, there are questions like, would you rather go to the opera, go to the symphony, or would you like to kill an animal with your bare hands? <laughs> and so it was obvious that the third was the one that they were looking for. And so I think it's called demand characteristics, <laughs> if you've learned from your survey uh, studies. So you're a good test taker. Mm. <laughs> That's the good, short answer. I was a good t test faker. Ah. <laughs> Which of these doesn't fit the group? <laughs> <laughs> if you could pick like, between a one. pineapple and a calculator, which would you yeah. pick? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so anyway, I, I got that I got I got that job, which was you know people looked at me and they said, okay, let's see, you're going to make and collect small loans, and you want to do this because why? And the answer was because it would pay the bills. So I did that for a while, and it just was as bad as it could be. I mean, it was really a horrible job. But then the economy completely crashed in the um, you know late 70s and early early 80s. There were just no other jobs to be had. My then wife was going to um, law school, UVA law school, and I could not get another job to save my life. So I stayed in for an extra three years and, and knocked out five years of being in small, small loans. And it was, it was sort of horrible, but to me, some of the greatest lessons I ever learned anywhere in business from lending and collecting loans, because the deal was it took a tremendous amount of judgment to say, okay, I'm going to lend you every dollar I possibly can and not one dollar too much. And then when you can't pay, I'm going to collect every dollar I possibly can get back from you ethically and not one dollar too much. So if you can't pay, you need to pay for food and the rent and so on. I'm not going to ask you for that money. Every dollar that you can afford to pay. And uh, that's that sort of heart-wrenching. That hurts to even yeah. hear because it's very uh, straightforward and mechanical. Mm -hmm. You need the money. I mean, well, understand, you, you know, the, the thing that I really never figured out until recently is that you can make money and also have meaning in your job at the same time, right? To invest not just your head, but your heart in something. To me, was sort of a novel thought until the last 10 years or so. I know that sounds dumb, but it, it just never came up. I always had sort of an instrumental view of work. I mean, when I was a kid, I worked at my father. My father had a savings bank. He, he ran a small savings bank. And so I was in the mail room, and I was a file clerk, and I was a teller, and I did everything there was to do at that, at that little bank for years and years and years and summers and over holidays and stuff. It always sucked, and I always wanted to be somewhere else. And so that lesson came down to me. It's just sort of, okay. You never outran that, basically. Well, no, I mean, I did, but it took me way too long. You know, this idea that you can do something that has really real intrinsic meaning, to me, is a, it's, just, it's just a tremendous idea. It's one of the things I really totally love about Stern.
is, you know, so I teach undergraduates and also MBAs, and the undergraduates have a social impact core, and they're all required to take one full credit course every year, which asks the question, what's the rightful role of business in the larger scheme of things, um, you know, government and other societal organizations, in order to make a good, true, just, decent world? I mean, damn, I love that stuff. Well, speaking of melding your mind and your heart, in those 25 years that you were in financial services, yeah. where did the music go? Yeah, what happened to the music? Ah, uh, yes. Well, I mean, we should put in music right now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> note to tape, uh, <laughs> background music. Right, exactly. I mean, one of the things that I really struggled with is that in classical music, I had deep, transcendent moments. Moments of absolute sort of mind-blowing bliss. Like you left your body? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I always wanted to do uh, Beethoven's Ninth. So we did Beethoven's Ninth um, at Carnegie Hall. Oh my gosh. We did six performances. So you sang at Carnegie Hall? Yes. Is that li- That's not listed anywhere on the resume for Stern, is it? Uh, no, I don't think so. I it thought would I certainly thought, be between the lines. Between the lines. I thought you were going to ask me um, how to get to uh, Carnegie Hall. No. You take the six to the <laughs> M25 train. <laughs> We're millennials. We just Google it. <laughs> See, that's where you fall short. You sure. put one foot in front of the other and uh, just, just a, keep walking. Yeah, just keep on walking. If you're going to poke at each other, I'm going to poke at both of you. So. Please do. That's fine. <laughs> we did Mahler's Symphony of a Thousand. It's very Sturm und Drang-y, if you know what I mean. It's very... We very don't. Do we do. Okay, that, that means... Um, it, that, that means very purple and romantic and loud. There are eight soloists. There, there is a choir of 400 people, an augmented orchestra, and it was the Philadelphia Orchestra again, of hundreds. And then another, a, a children's choir of like 200. Most people don't know what it's like to have 800 souls reaching out to the beyond and uh, asking, and, and um, the actual part of this music, the choir sings, Accende Lumen de Lumine, Ascend Light of Lights, and he's asking for inspiration, you know, for the muse. It, he's, I, I think he's sort of not really all about God. He's more of an atheist with, you know, on steroids. He's just looking for that buzz that you get from from what music can do. And so there's a monster build with all these forces coming up to that moment where, where the choir sings um, Achende. And he does this outrage. So Wagner, Wagner does this, outri- uh, rather Mahler does this outrageous thing where he splits the, the, the word in two. And so there's this huge build that takes like five minutes to get up to to this huge crescendo and then he cuts off all the forces and the choir and all the forces sing as loudly as they possibly can ah just ah and then stop and then chende light of lights lumen de lumine for a 20 year old to have this experience was really sort of mind-blowing. And so, you know, you, you sort of enter this state of bliss 
which, you know, most people in their day-to-day lives don't have that experience. For me, it was the 70s. I'm in Philadelphia. I couldn't figure out how to leave that concert hall with all those forces singing for inspiration and then go back to a crappy little practice room in depressing northern Philadelphia. It was a really crummy neighborhood at the time. It was really tough. So I couldn't understand how do I fit these transcendent feelings into a normal life? And so uh, that question I didn't have to answer because I couldn't figure out how to pay the bills with it. How How do we build a life where you get to touch something so beautiful and powerful and refined as music or the arts and fit that into a normal life where we pay the bills, we get up, you know, and, and do what we need to do every day. To well, it's fill. sort of like a, a swelling of your heart and your soul. And I mean, I've, I've certainly experienced that, particularly, in fact, when I'm playing with other people. Mm-hmm. So my sister is a flautist and mm. we, we play together and there's oh, something beautiful. incredible that right. happens when you right. are in sync and when you're listening to one another and when you're creating music. Right. You know, you're creating art. Yeah, it's a, that, well, that, that connection. I mean, so, so being in a choir like that, you know, your ego boundaries drop. And all there is is you being carried along by the others. Part of something very, very tangibly, as you just described, you're part of something larger than yourself. Now, that's basically a, a, a spiritual experience. How do you have a meaningful life? Do you need moments of extreme transcendence to make your life meaningful? Well, I mean, I don't know. But the bottom line is most people don't have an opportunity to do that. I was lucky enough to have those experiences. But it left me going out into the business world where there was nothing like that. And indeed, really very, almost no sense of meaning. Well, let me ask you this. So you have such a presence, and I I think hopefully our listeners will be able to even sense it. But were you ever able to replicate that transcendence, that feeling of, Mm. of soul expansion when you were interacting with people because you're so you're so personable well thank you i i mean i'm a recovering introvert and that may seem improbable certainly does seems unlikely right but no i it really is true i was really shy i was a fat little boy (laughs) and the, the children in elementary school were not kind the term was fatty, fatty, bumbleatty, if, if I remember. That's not even clever. It's a poor yeah. rhyme. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, so it took me years of therapy to get over that. All that stuff. Just the rhyme. Just, There's not, just, and nothing being, else. Of being teased by just un, uh, uninspired, like not creative bullies. <laughs> Right, exactly. You know, it was very easy to be an introvert in a choir. And so here I could have these wonderful feelings of being connected to something larger than myself without experiencing the pain of actually dealing with humans in sort of a free form way. And so over the years, I got over it, basically. And so what I do now as a communication professor is help people take that journey more quickly than I did. Because what I've discovered is that when you really you really understand how to connect with other humans, it's not quite trans. It's not like singing Mahler's eighth or you know Beethoven's ninth. But there's meaning there, and and any time there are people, there's meaning there. So even even when you have a job where you're so I was. Um, I was an analyst. I designed and ran large pro forma financial simulation models. There wasn't a lot of humanity in that. There were a lot of algorithms in that. There was a lot of programming and uh, a lot of, um, you know, just just working with the numbers. 
And what happened to me was I did that for five years after I got my MBA in finance. It's, you know, I was able to get out of the small loan business and then did that for five years. And what, what happened was I didn't have a sense of connection with humans because it was just me and the numbers. And so I wiggled my way into financial communications. And at least that was about, you know, talking about numbers with people. And then over time, that became more and more my goal was to make that connection with people. It's just so much more fun to connect with people and get stuff done. Is that where you saw the same element of transcendence in your just dry loan job, your dry banking job was when you looked at somebody personally in the eye, you saw something there and that made you want to keep doing that? Uh, yes. Um, I'm pausing because that actually makes me feel very emotional. Um, I, um, I learned compassion by being a bill collector. Um, when I said that you ask for every dollar you can possibly ethically ask for, that's one thing. You know, I had to, we, we collected money the old fashioned way. We went out into the field and collected it. So I went and knocked on doors. I went and carried away stereos. I repossessed cars. I even foreclosed on a house. And believe me, it wasn't by choice. Nobody wants to foreclose on a house. I only did one, and it was living hell. And so I got to know those people, and I saw their pain and suffering. I was just a kid from the suburbs. My father you know, was, ran a bank, and we didn't want for anything financially, and so I'm very lucky and blessed. But boy, I saw things in the hills of central Virginia that just absolutely, I've, 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 I've seen an amazing amount of suffering that went on in those hills. And it, and it really, I could feel, I, I felt for them. I felt for them. And so it was a great, you know, ironically, that's sort of a blessing for me because it woke up my heart rather than just sort of live a life of piling up money and having nicer stuff. It really gave me a sense of compassion, a sense of desire to, you know, be connected in a way that could help. Anyway, what happened was that I was a financial communicator. And all the while I was doing that, I had started a hobby of being in theater, in community theater. And that was incredibly fun. And that's the first time that I started to sing solos. And then I started to get my first leads. Being in theater then made it possible for me to combine my, my music, my singing, and to get out from, from being in the choir and to stand up and be a soloist, be the lead. And, and what happened was that was, such, that was so joyous to do that. That And I was starting to, I was in my mid-30s already. I, I couldn't do the 20-something roles. And I was already, you know, the young dad character. And I was looking at that slipping away. And so, so I said, I got to get out of this and, and see if I can grab whatever parts I can. So when I quit, <laughs> never do this, quit my really good paying job and uh, went into acting full time in my mid-30s, which is just completely stupid. Um, <laughs> believe me, if I had to do it over again, I, I guess I wouldn't have, but uh, that's I astonishing though, because you know, for a lot of people that are here yeah. right now, I mean, they're turning and burning yeah, yeah. and trying to get where you were in finance I know. with a great paying job. I know. And that's the gold standard. That's the gold standard just to depart that yeah. and to chase a passion. What gave you the courage to do something like that? You know what? Lucky. I just, you know, I had put aside enough money that I could pull this off what? and without too many consequences. 
And indeed, what happened was, I mean, I got out, I went to um, Studio Theater Conservatory. It's in Washington, D.C. That's where I was living at the time. And, um, and I studied intensely for three years while getting acting jobs. And I also created a leadership development company that used interactive improvisatory theater to help do leadership development. Now I'm doing some of that work now here at, at Stern. And this was back in the early 90s. So it's been quite a long time ago since I, I, I did that. So I had these, you know, tremendous experiences as an actor. It was really an incredible learning experience, but it was it was the hardest thing I ever did in my life. It was harder than being a, a, a small loan manager, loan collector. It was harder than being an MBA in finance, harder than being an analyst, harder than being a financial communicator, investor relations guy. Because it was about emotions and working with them in a way that was authentic and impactful for a performance, for the audience, for your um, colleagues on stage. And it was... It just incredibly challenging. From an outside perspective, it seems as if your departure into acting full-time is the crescendo, to use the musical terminology, um, that, you know, sort of, of your career path. And when I say that, you know, you, you started in singing and then you go to a job that is devoid of human contact and then you're exposed to the human contact and you're able to empathize and you grow your heart and you grow your emotional intelligence and then you take that knowledge of people and then you you act you know you you take that knowledge and you put it to use i mean right. as an outside perspective i i see the arc very clearly yeah it living it living it it didn't feel that way it really felt like I was, you know, just sort of making it up as I went along. That's actually part of my research right now is the, is the nature of narrative and how that serves to help us in our business lives and connect with other people through effective storytelling. But what's more important are the stories that we tell ourselves about who we are. And one of the things I learned from being an actor and doing these various, coming at life from a lot of different angles, is that it's there's a lot more wiggle room here than a traditional career might reveal in terms of our ability to co-create ourselves with the world. Because obviously the world's got to gotta work with you or it's not going to be good. Is that what we call luck? <laughs> oh my God. Well, you know, I, there's been a lot of that in, um, in the press recently about the role of luck in, in careers. And oh my God, yes. Oh, so, I mean, I, I came to Stern. It was just totally lucky. You know, a friend knew the knew um, you know the head of the management communication group here at at Stern and said, "Why don't you drop by and and talk to him?" And I did, and I got a adjunct gig, and a year and a half later, I got a full time gig. So, so what I teach is people communicating on their feet, collaborating, you know, in teams, and and writing, of course, and that's and that's what I teach. But at the core of all those things is is the humanity part. And one of the things, and I've been a geek my whole life, I've always been really curious about science ever since I was in junior high school. I always loved science. And so neuroscience explosion for me has been just this, you know, I'm like a kid in a candy store. Paul Zak yesterday, I was, it's all a present. He's the, he's the um, an incredible neuroscientist and has a consulting business wrapped around what he's learned about oxytocin, which is a social bonding uh, hormone. And he wrote a nifty article called The Neuroscience of Narrative. And I think it reveals the core secret 
And this is really, I think, explains all of meaning in life. And here it is. And that is, look, what do you have when you have a story? I mean, what's, what's the center of, of a story? Uh, the protagonist, right? Yeah. Yeah, right? So here comes the hero. We get her. You know, we, we care about her. Indeed, his point is oxytocin is generated because we make a connection with the hero. Now, what else is necessary to have a good story? I don't know, Sherry. Well, I always love a good lesson. How do you get a good lesson? So you got a protagonist. How do you get a lesson out of a story? Well, there's always there's typically failure involved. And then resilience. Okay. And Ryan Gosling. And and Eva Mendez. And Eva Mendez. <laughs> there you go. Right. So I think you're getting at it is that we see the hero, and the hero has to go through some stuff in order to learn those lessons. Right? And when we care about something, we get scared when that person might be hurt. We try, and then we are, you know, we struggle. You know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but we keep on fighting. You know, we take away our lessons, and we make ourselves the hero of our, our own lives. One of the things that struck me um, as I was trying to figure out how to frame all this, because I am working on research and I am trying to get some words on paper, came across the idea of guanxi. And you know what guanxi is. Mandarin for... No? Really? <laughs> no, we do not. <laughs> okay, all right. We um, are really getting schooled here. <laughs> Gu- guanxi is... Uh, and excuse me for mispronouncing this because I'm sure you know we'll get cost. Is the pictograph in Mandarin for relationships. And there are two images. You can't tell because it's been abstracted in terms of the pictograph. Um an open door, which is the opportunity that a relationship offers. And the other half is a tether. It's the obligation that a relationship requires. And in a way, that's a parallel with the nature of a story, which is you have, here comes the hero. What wonderful things can happen? And then what struggles are there going to be? And that essence comes across in a story, the stories we tell ourselves and the stories we tell others. Now, with your research about stories and narrative, do you feel like you're the hero of your own story and you're in the place where you're supposed to be doing the thing you're supposed to do? Yeah, I actually, actually, yes. I mean, I really, I, you know, literally, I don't want to do anything else but this, which is just, you know, for a guy, they didn't have ADHD when I was a child. I, I, I had something called ADOS. Have you ever heard of ADOS? Sherry? I'm really excited to hear what this acronym means. <laughs> it's Attention Deficit... Oh, shiny. <laughs> Thank you. Cheap, cheap joke. <laughs> and so what's beautiful about, about what I'm studying is it requires sort of studying the gestalt of being alive. You know, what is it to be a human? It's really cool. I mean, famously, we don't make sense. Humans are not logical. We're predictably irrational and all that kind of stuff. You know, all those pubs. Do you feel that your teachings are a social impact? Or create social impact. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things I, you know, it, I, I, my mind is blown that I'm in academia because I think of myself as a business guy, really at heart. Um, Have you always thought of yourself as a business guy, even when you were acting and singing? You know, and- I, I think you know when I was in elementary school, I was the only kid in my class that had a briefcase. Wow. Oh yeah, my that's really sad. So you're the bad kid with the briefcase. <laughs> you, you see me now? That would be me. You've given the audience a visual. Uh, I'm almost sorry. <laughs> we all, as uh, mammals, we need to do two things. And we're animals still. We have the same hardware that mammals have. 
we have to connect with each other, right? To reproduce and to uh, create communities. And we need to compete with each other. One is an archetypal masculine impulse and one is an archetypal feminine impulse. When I was a kid, women were to connect and men were to compete, almost always. And that's changed during my life. And I think it's a wonderful thing because my observation is my father needed what my mother knew and my mother needed what my father knew in that he had power, which she lacked, and she had connection, which he lacked. And so my hope is that we all of us can have both and find balance between connection and competition. What I learned from being an actor was acting isn't pretending to be something you're not. It's taking the authentic aspects of yourself that serve a particular moment, in this case, a scene in a, in a play or in a song or whatever, and um, combining those authentic elements in a way that serves the needs of the playwright, the director, your, um, the other actors on stage, and of course, the, um, the audience. And that's what humans do all the time. We all have, you know, as, as uh, Walt Whitman said, do I can contradict myself very well? I contradict myself, or I contain multitudes. We all do. We all have different facets of our personalities, and we use different ones for different situations. Actors, when they integrate this into their lives, and some of them don't, know how to do that deftly. So that means being able to be um, strong in our emotions, but also agile in our emotions, and also authentic in our emotions. Really good actors know this. And I've struggled to learn it as well as I possibly could, and it's lifelong learning. But you get the chance to act every day. Um, right, exactly. And you get to get up on stage, your classroom, and right. give your students parts of yourself and be authentic and genuine. Well, I mean, the, the greatest challenge I have in this role is to learn, is for them to learn more than I do, and I think I always fail. Um, in that regard and it's just a monumental privilege to try for them to actually learn more from me than I'm learning from them and, and I, 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 I don't know that I've ever succeeded at that because it's that interaction is what it's about. One of the things that sort of almost tortures me when I'm in front of a classroom is I get filled with this feeling, just exactly what couldn't we accomplish? If we could get on the same page, the people in this room, what couldn't we do? My sense is there's not much. I hope you tell your students that. Yeah. It's a pretty powerful statement. I, I'm very I'm inspirational. Not I'm not sure that I have said that or not, but it's, it's such a, I mean, the feeling is so palpable. It's, a, it's amazing what, the, what they'll come up with. I'll, I'll tell you one joke, which, which was my favorite, because one of the things I regularly do say to my students is, always question authority. So if there's an argument, give me a counter-argument. And so I said that, always question authority. And before my voice had bounced off the back wall, student in the front row said, why? <laughs> yeah. And, and so he great. was so quick and I so slow <laughs> that I started to, you know, professor explain to him. <laughs> and so I got about halfway into the sentence and I went, you're like you got brilliant. I mean, well, no. I mean, the 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 intelligence. When I was a kid, you went to school because that's where the information was. Now the information's everywhere. Now it's easy to convey information, but how do you help people evolve? 
And that's really, to me, that's what we need to try to figure out. And I think we're doing, I think we're making progress. Well, I mean, I, I know for me, I information is out there. You know, I, I can read an econ book and I can read a finance book. That's you not why Google. I come to school. I come to school so that I have professors like you. No, no, seriously, though, sort of explain it in a way and in an environment right. where, where you evolve and you change and you... Right adapt to those new teachings. I mean, that's right. that's why you go to school. And you make it alive. Exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. You bring it, to, exactly, you embody it. One of the, and one of the, you may not realize this, but for professors, what, what happens on my end of that transaction is it's sort of a win-win. You know, it's, uh, there's a term that a colleague uses, which is it's a, a generative moment. And that means it's sort of one plus one equals three. So one of my goals with students now is every time I sit down, I want there to be more than there was when we sat down. And by more, I mean more. More humanity, more sense of connection, more knowledge, more wisdom. And, and that is not a one-way street. Well, do not fear. You are definitely leaving us with more than when we <laughs> yes, started. Yes, I would say absolutely more. Well, thank you. It, it takes a lot of activation energy to get out of your yeah. your loop and to follow your heart and to... Inertia is a powerful thing. Oh, it's so yeah, powerful. Really, you know what I mean? Really is, and momentum. Yeah. And we're misusing physics terms like crazy. But... <laughs> we'll not be sending this to my high school physics No, absolutely teacher. not. I'm, I'm sure you got a C, C minus. Oh. I did very well in <laughs> physics. Did. Oh, Thank man. you very much. Let's be clear about who said I'm that. So I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. even got to AP physics. Oh, Lord. AP, my Sherry. My goodness. Okay, Anyways, but if you are... We digress. If you are approaching a traditional yeah. career and you're just yeah. starting it and you, you could possibly get locked into it, yeah. how could you give advice to somebody at that point? My whole life, I have come late to everything that I've done. I was late to classical music. I was late to business. I was late to acting. I was late to entrepreneurship and late to consulting and now late to academia. So everywhere I went, I had a feeling like I was the outsider. Moreover, I felt like I was an imposter. It's like, I'm just faking it until I become it, is the way I've led most of my life. And part of that is because I'm sort of comfortable with being the outsider. It was like the little fat kid while everybody else was running around. I was sitting there eating, you know, Cheetos. With or, your briefcase. <laughs> with my <laughs> briefcase. Yes. That Handful of Cheetos <laughs> in a briefcase. That... <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank God that isn't three things, because then you would make it the title. Um, and what Amy Cuddy's book called Presence, it's, it's a pretty good, pretty good read. She's a very traditional social psychologist, but very academic. But she did a whole chapter on the imposter complex. And she said something which blew my mind, and that is that uh, she took us through the history of the study of that phenomenon and discovered, at first they thought, oh, the imposter complex. So oh, this is something that is just isolated in a certain subsection of the society. They found that fully between 60 and 70% of people suffer from the imposter complex. So that some two-thirds of us feel like, who are we? We're just imposters. 
And I don't know if that's your experience, but my experience coming up was that I looked at people and everybody looked like they had their act together. And I always felt like I, you know, I didn't have my act together. And so one of the most beautiful things that I've, I've learned is that nobody really knows what they're doing. That's why we need each other. So I'm going to throw in one more thing just because I have to. The best thing I ever learned in my life was the Pygmalion effect. Did I talk about this in class? Do you know who Pygmalion was? He painted a picture and he fell in love with it and it came to life. Mm, that's very, very close. That is the essence. Almost. Of the, that is the essence of the story. He is a sculptor, but everything else is, this, is correct. So he loved his sculpture, and there's a spectacular picture of this, and I can't remember the artist who uh, portrayed him carving Galatea out of stone, and he loves her so absolutely that she comes to life. In social intelligence, the concept of Pygmalion effect is to approach every conversation so comp- and in such an open state that we don't uh, deny any potential outcome. You know what I think is interesting is that you know, you're, the accomplishment you really want more than anything is to be the most real human you can be. But by being so vulnerable and honest about your heart and your life, you are one of the most real people that we've ever talked to. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. And thank you enough for coming oh, well, to sit there. Thank you so much for I'd love the to time. have conver- There's nothing better than having a conversation. You know? Right. We could not agree more. <laughs> a good old-fashioned one. I mean, Sherry was literally just sitting with her, her chin on her hands. <laughs> leaning in. She, I mean, it's tremendous. They yeah. paid me to say that. <laughs> <laughs> Sherry, we've learned so much today. Yes. I mean, we certainly learned what Pygmalion was. <laughs> <laughs> it seems well, you like already, you already knew. Yeah, you I was, in the, like you I was in the ballpark, you know? Yeah, no, you had the essence of it. So, so that's very cool. just thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Yes. Yes.